Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. All hit radio. Welcome to the X Zone. A place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. And welcome back, everyone. This is the Exxon. I am Rob McConnell coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to send us an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. And to find out about what is happening on the Exxon Radio Show, visit our website, exxonradiotv.com. And for all the programming information on the Exxon TV channel that is exclusive to Simul TV, visit simultv.com. You know, uh, Buff, uh, Jimmy Buffett brought us into this uh, segment with Cheeseburger in Paradise, which, considering the topic of this hour, is going to be very appropriate. We're going to be speaking to a young lady uh, by the name of, let me see, Brenda Gask. Is that how you pronounce your family name, Brenda? Close, but not quite. Right. Gansky. Gansky. All right. And uh, we're going to be talking about, well, why don't we bring our guest on? and have her tell us a little bit about herself and what we're going to be talking about. So, Brenda, welcome to the X-Zone, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me. Um, as I said, my name is Brenda, and I'm the creator and host of a podcast called Horrifying History, which we first released in October of 2019. And how I like to describe Horrifying History, mm -hmm. it's the place where fact, history, lore, and the supernatural collide. So in each show, we discuss a spooky topic, and we tell our listeners about the history and lore behind it, but mm -hmm. then we also present the evidence, the science, the documentation, and the fact behind that same subject. And we allow our audience to decide where the truth actually lies while we tell a story along the way. All right. Now, we're, we're going to be talking about 
horrifying history, as you said. And um, where do you get the topics for your show? <laughs> well, I love to tell people I like to educate while I terrify. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a lot of our, our subject topics actually just came from stuff that I've always been interested in or looked into or stories I've read or heard of as I was growing up. But um, a lot of them also come from our listeners. Um, we actually have a show that's coming out very quickly. It's about one of the most haunted houses, but it's one of the oldest structures in the States. And it actually was one of the families mm-hmm. that reached out to me and asked me to do a show on them. So it, they come from all over the place. All right. Now, why cannibalism? <laughs> well, I have a question for you. Sure. Of all the TV movie villains, mm-hmm. would you say that one of the most disturbing is Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs? Uh, no, no, I wouldn't. I would say one of the most terrifying is Jim Carrey in any of the movies he does. <laughs> True enough. Yeah, no, but now, I, can, I can see where you're going with Hannibal Lecter. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Now, the reason why a lot of people um, don't like Hannibal Lecter himself as a character is because it's not the fact that he just kills people, but he also eats the people he kills. And what he's doing is actually considered to be one of society's deepest and most ancient taboos. The consuming of human flesh is considered to be the ultimate betrayal of humanity. So believe it or not, though, not all cultures share this belief. Mm-hmm. For example, in ancient China, human body parts would appear on imperial menus. So I thought that I would start today to talk, before we talk about some scary little cannibalism stories, about telling you some facts about it. And these are questions that I've actually been asked by people who listen to our show. Okay. So... Now, the first question I have always been asked, believe it or not, is why is cannibalism so bad? Can you get a disease? Because they always hear about this big disease. Well, it's actually true. Eating human, uh, a human brain can cause a disease called Kuru, which is actually like mad cow disease. Now, the symptoms start with trembling and, well, you die. It's pretty simple. It actually started with the indigenous people in New Guinea called the Four. And up to the 1950s, they would eat bodies of their relatives to clean their spirits before they moved forward. Now, thousands of people contacted Kuru and died, but not everybody did. Here's the interesting fact. Over the last 200 years, some of the Four actually developed a genetic mutation that protects them from the disease. But cannibalism is not done anymore with the Four because of the changing ideology with the times and laws that came into effect. Now, cannibalism itself is actually very rare in the animal kingdom, but it does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of researchers believe that this practice speeds up maturing, and it actually eliminates future rivals, but it's not very common. Now, the interesting thing is about the whole name of it. It was actually named, a name the Spanish gave a Caribbean tribe, and they called them the Cannibales. The Spanish actually accused these people of ri- ritualistically eating their enemies, but modern scholars don't believe this was done at all. It was only just a propaganda tactic to use to fear uh, or make up fear and hatred against the indigenous population. Now, just getting a little more closer to home, cannibalism actually was practiced in North America. Now, they have found in 2013, archaeological or digs discovered there's evidence of cannibalism in colonial Jamestown. And what they found was markings on a skull of a 14-year-old girl that indicated she was eaten by the other settlers during a horrible winter that occurred in 1609. And there's also a lot of huge cannibalistic examples that we could go through history and see. But none is so weird that cannibalism was actually used as a medical treatment. So, for example, in Germany from 1600 to the 1800s, 
executioners had a side job. They would sell body parts as medicine. So if human fat was sold as a remedy for broken bones, sprains, and arthritis, apothecaries would stock human fat, flesh, and bone to use in their mixtures. Human skulls were often ground into a fine power, powder and mixed in with a liquid to treat epilepsy. Now, this sounds very weird today, but here's the thing. Many people do eat the placenta after giving birth or make it into pills to ingest. All right, Some now that's getting a little it, too strange right? for me, you know, eating placentas. Yeah, well, they do. But people think it actually prevents postpartum depression and it improves mood and energy. But here's the problem with that. So I'm going to have to be very clear in case anyone thinks of doing this. Current evidence shows it actually does cause harm to both mother and child since these preparations do not destroy any bacteria, viruses, or infections that that placenta could contain. Mm-hmm. So that, that we've done some myth-busting. Do you want to hear some creepy stories about cannibalism? Well, first of all, um, I guess I'd like to ask you, when is the first recorded act of cannibalism in history? Well, the actual uh, first act, they, 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 they actually have to, are proven it's gone back to caveman time. Oh. Um, a lot of times they actually did it to prevent the people from being taken away by scavengers. So literally it has been done since we started walking on two feet. Mm. Well, there you go. Imagine going into a restaurant and somebody says, uh, what would you like tonight? Oh, well, I'll just have some rump roast and bang. That gives a <laughs> total, a it gives you a whole new way of looking at rump roast. Uh, <laughs> you know, as, as you were discussing that, I, I, I've heard of stories of people who have been marooned or have, and uh, people that have been uh, adrift where they've actually cannibalized one of the, one of the other survivors in order to survive. And I guess we never know what will happen unless we're put into that situation where it's do or die. True. And there's actually a lot of different reasons that cannibalism can happen. Mm -hmm. For example, well, as we were talking with Hannibal Lecter, Uh some people like it. Um, But also, absolutely, a lot of times it's done for sheer survival. But then another time, um, I think it's a little mix of the two. I guess it's a polite way of saying it, mix of the two. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So, are you a horror movie fan? No. No? No. Well, do you know who Wes, Wes Craven is? No. Well, Wes Craven is actually one of the best well-known horror movie makers that there ever was. Um, in the late 1970s, Wes Craven was actually a struggling filmmaker And he made the first horror film that he put out, which is a classic called The Last House on the Left. Now, he actually didn't want to do just horror movies, but he only could get financing for horror movies. And he soon realized he was pretty good at scaring people. So that's how he became one of the best horror movie filmmakers of all time. Now, 40 years ago, he actually produced another film on a very tight budget you may have heard of called The Hills Have Eyes. Now, in today's standards, this movie is pretty bad. (laughs) <laughs> it's pretty bad. Not bad as in film, but it's, it's pretty brutal. So in case, like, if you haven't seen it or your listeners, it actually just starts with a man named Bob and his wife Ethel and five of their family members going in a camper van towards San Diego. An accident happens. The group gets stranded in the desert. Now, two men decide to walk and get help, but the rest of the group decides to wait. Now, what they don't know is they're stranded in an area that was used for nuclear testing decades earlier. And that mutated a group of people that now develop the taste of flesh. But here's the scary thing about the movie. It's based on a true story. 
You mean there are people in the Midwest uh, where there has been nuclear testing that actually go around and eat people? No. That was all West Craven. But ah. the story was actually based off a guy called Alexander Sonny B. All right. We're going to have to have a bit of a cliffhanger here because I do have to take my first break. Uh-oh. Yeah. And Exonation. Nation. Yes. We're going to be talking about cannibalism and much more off this hour here in the Exxon. If you'd like to send me an email, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. And, of course, you can always check us out on all the social medias, Exxon Radio TV. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. We're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome back, everyone. Brenda Gansk is our special guest. And uh, we're talking about horrifying history this hour here in the Exxon. We're talking about cannibalism. All right. Two cannibals sitting in front of a cauldron. One cannibal says to the other cannibal, are you having a good time? The other one says, yeah, having a ball. There you go. Gives a new, uh... <laughs> we'll just let everybody's imagination say, what the hell is he talking about? An eyeball? Oh, yeah. Keeping an eye out for you. There you go. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you were going to tell us a story, and I had to go to my hard break, which I apologize for. So please continue. Well, no worries. Uh, so Alexander Sonny Bean, he was actually born in the late 1500s near Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. And very little is known about his early days. But what we do know is Sonny's father was a ditch digger and a hedge trimmer. And it's said that Sonny tried to work in his dad's chosen trade, but he realized that his goals in life did not involve any sort of work. So he decided to leave home and make his own way in the world Mm -hmm. after he met a woman who would become his wife. Now, this woman's name was Black Agnes Douglas, and she was said to be exactly like Sonny. She didn't want to work for her living. So they decided to remove themselves from society and live in a sea cave on the coast. Now, to support his wife, Sonny decided to start ambushing and robbing people who were traveling along the roads that connected the villages in the region. Now, from the very beginning, Sonny would murder his victims and prevent them to go to the authorities. But what would he do with the bodies? 
well, if you're Sonny, you just take up cannibalism. Now, this was actually kind of smart in a sick way. It not only got rid of the bodies, but mm-hmm. it stopped the couple from having to make unnecessary trips out to get provisions. So as the years passed, the Bean family started to grow. And according to legend, Sonny and Agnes had eight sons and six daughters, and soon they had children, grandchildren they came because they were products of incest. Now, Sonny and Agnes, they taught their growing clan to survive just like they did by robbery, murder, and cannibalism. Now, soon the family hit 45 members, and they would all murder victims, eat until full, and then pickle the remains in large barrels so the leftovers would be taken care of. It was like the 1500s Tupperware. Mm. So they started taking parts of bodies, like a foot here and a hand there, and put it in the local waterways to make it look like animals were responsible for the missing people. But even so... A lot of people were going missing, so people started to notice, and locals started to make efforts to find out who the perpetrators were and to try to bring them to justice. But the problem was that the cave that the Bean family lived in was well hidden, and the mouth of the cave would fill with water at high tide, which made it invisible to passers-by. Also, the beans actually hunted at night, so that way they weren't seen. This in combination led the townsfolk not being able to find the criminals and bring them to justice, but sadly, they made a lot of people scapegoats and they lynched them just to appease the growing mob. So I have to put in my bad joke here. Okay. Eventually, the Bean family, they bit off more they can, than they could chew. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that one. That's so one cute. Night, <laughs> one night, they actually went out hunting and they spotted a family that was coming home from a fair. Now, they looked like they were easy targets, but they actually weren't. When the beans attacked, they were surprised to discover the man was actually a really skilled fighter, and he did so, and he was carrying a sword and pistol. Mm -hmm. But by the time he was actually able to chase away the beans, his wife was dead and already disemboweled. A separate group of people leading that same fair saw the attack and came to help, but the (laughs) beans got away, but now they were known. So after this event, the group traveled to Glasgow to report the attack and the murder to the magistrates. They brought this news to King James VI, who was on the throne of Scotland at the time. Now, King James was so shocked by this, he decided to actually take action himself, which was very rare then. He, along with 400 men, took out bloodhounds to the site of the slaughter. Now, the hounds quickly found the cave, Mm -hmm. and the beans surrendered without any fight. Now, when people entered the cave system, they were shocked with what they found. It was filthy, there was body parts hung on the walls to dry, while others were in the barrels and the jars. Possessions of all the lost people were just dumped in piles around this, this cave. So the family was then put into chains and brought to a place called the Old Two Bulls Jail in Edinburgh. It was decided that these guys were so bad, they didn't even deserve a trial due to their actions. It was immediately decided that action had to be taken. So they cut off the guys' uh, hands and feet and their boy stuff, and they were left to bleed to death. The women were then all burnt at the stake. Now, the Bean's reign of hungry terror then came to an end, but the story of the Alexander Bean and his family has been actually debated for years. Many believe it's true, even though there's a lack of documented evidence of their existence or of the trial and execution. Others think that lore that developed over time, but nevertheless, it actually does point to maybe it's not true. And the reason is, there was Jacobite risings around that time. Now, these Jacobite risings were a series of rebellions and wars with Great Britain and Ireland that occurred between 1688 and 1746. These uprisings had the goal of returning what the Scottish thought was the rightful king to the throne, which was James II of England or James VIII of Scotland. 
he was actually the last British monarch, and his descendants of House of Stuart actually did ascend to the throne of Great Britain. But during this time, the English press regularly portrayed their enemies, especially people from Scotland, in a negative light or having an evil nature. So some people think that actually they could have just invented this story to make them the Scottish look backwards and uncivilized. And there is even speculation that Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe, mm -hmm. actually wrote the story. But the interesting thing is, this whole story is a cottage industry in itself. If you go to Edinburgh, it's a huge attraction there, and it is one of their most, most popular attractions. And it also got published so much that it actually caught the eye of Wes Craven, and he was so inspired about a story that he read about Sonny Bean that he actually went and wrote his movie. But it actually helped influence another famous horror film, which was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That one I remember, and it was pretty gruesome. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems that the Scottish are pretty good at cottage industries because they did the same thing with the Loch Ness Monster. Exactly. Yeah. Why do you think mm -hmm. in today's society... I would do it. Yeah. Well, you are doing it in a way. I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, why is it that people have an interest in cannibalism? You know, like, why would, why would I... we just not say, oh, look, it's part of dark history. Let's just leave it alone and move forward. Think it has to do with what I was saying earlier about the taboo of it. Mm. And if you think about it, what is the worst thing you can do? Really, there's a lot of bad things you can do out there. What is the absolute worst thing that you can do to another person is really to obliterate them away from existence. And what better way than cannibalism? When you said, you know, yeah, when you were talking before I, and uh, you were talking about, you know, what's the worst thing you can do to a person? I was going to say, well, not pay your taxes because Revenue Canada can be pretty hard. Well, they're bloodsuckers. They can find yeah. you. Oh, oh, they can. <laughs> if anybody can, they can. Um, tell us a little bit. We've got about two minutes before I have to go to my next break. Tell us a little bit about your show. Well, um, our show, um, we actually do are out on every major podcast provider like Apple Podcasts, mm -hmm. Spotify, Podbean. Um, but we also have a YouTube channel where you can not only listen to this podcast, but our other unique shows that we put out. And our show, well, I'll just say we're very unique. Um, I got a letter today from one of our fans and he was telling us about, um, I'll put it this way, one of our shows, I'll just say it's show number 30 that we put out. And it's very unique. It is uh, talking about the origin stories of a lot of commonly used products. And one of them, I'll just give an example, is the treadmill. The treadmill was actually invented as a torture device for prisons, which makes a lot of sense if you've ever been on a treadmill. So um, one of those items is Lysol products, which I'm not going to tell you on air what it was originally invented for. So our, our listener wrote, and she says, I was listening to this. I just moved. I was unpacking my house, and my husband walked in just when you were talking about Lysol. And he went right on the phone, and he was talking to my mom about the shocking thing he heard about Lysol. And she says, I had to actually explain it to him. And once I did, she says, everybody laughed and thought it was hilarious and had no idea that Lysol was not invented to um, take away bacteria off of surfaces in our kitchen. Fascinating. All right, share, why can't you tell us about it? Well, I'll give you a hint. Okay. Um, it was used for birth control. Okay. <laughs> God, oh, I've got many pictures in that, of that one, you know. Wow. You wouldn't have guessed it, would you? <laughs> no, I wouldn't have, and that's the last time I used Lysol on our kitchen counters, I guess. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm a non-Lysol <laughs> user after finding that out. <laughs> Gosh. All right, please stand by, uh, Brenda. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. And Dexo Nation, our guest this hour is Brenda Gansky. And if you'd like to uh, listen to her show, uh, it's available on, like Brenda was saying, on all major audio platforms on the net. Her website is www.horrifyinghistory.podbean.com. That's www.horrifyinghistory.podbean.com. And uh, we'll both be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the Exxon with yours truly, Rob McConnell from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. All right, we have a brand new show starting on the Exxon Broadcast Network. Sue London, the pet psychic, is going to be joining us. Her show is entitled Ask Sue London, the pet psychic. And she's going to be on the Exxon TV channel as well as on the Exxon Broadcast Network. So, interesting times. Her first show is going to be airing, hmm, I believe, the second week of December. For more information, check out her website, www.assulondon.com. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. Exonation Brenda Gansky is our special guest this hour. www.horrifyinghistory.podbean.com. You know, it's funny because one of my favorite movies is uh, Fried Green Tomatoes, and that's got cannibalism in, cannibalism in that movie. Hmm. I've never seen it. Ah, you'll have to see it. It's <laughs> it's a rather twisted story. It's a good story. And uh, it's funny, I was thinking during the break, well, geez, I haven't heard of, well, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, everybody's seen that one, and uh, Silence of the Lambs. Well, Uh, have you ever read the book Moby Dick? Yes, I have. Do you know that is actually based on a true story, too? No, I didn't know that. I didn't know that uh, Herman Melville was into the weird and the macabre. (laughs) Well, actually, it was based on a ship called the Essex. Mm -hmm. And what happened in July of 1852, Herman decided to take a steamer ship to Nantucket, Massachusetts, which was the home port for his book's protagonist, Captain Ahab. While he was there, he met and hung out with the locals. He took in the sights of the town that he imagined. 
But on his very last day, he met a man who was a 60-year-old gentleman, Captain George Pollard Jr. Now, George was the captain of the Essex that was sunk by a sperm whale in 1820. And this was the event that inspired his novel. Now, George was 29 years old when that ship sunk. And he was able to get back to Nantucket and captain a second whaling ship. But when he wrecked that one on a coral reef two years later, George became a marked man. Nobody would give him a ship. So he actually lived the rest of his life on land as the village night watcher. So George actually told his story to his fellow captains at dinner shortly after he was rescued. And he told it also to a missionary named George Bennett. Now, according to Bennett, the tale he told was a grim confession. So the story actually started on August 14, 1819, just two days after the Essex left port on a whaling ship that was supposed to be two and a half years long. So soon after the Essex left its dock, it was hit by a squall and it destroyed or destroyed their top gallant sail and nearly sunk the 87-foot ship. But still, George and his crew was able to get to Cape Horn five weeks later. Now, just soon after they arrived, the 20-man crew found the waters in that area to be nearly fished out. So they decided to sail to the whaling grounds of South Pacific, which was actually way far away from land. The ship had to restock first, and when it actually did, they went to an island and one of the crew members decided to set a fire for a prank. It was the dry season, and after they ran through the flames, they all escaped. They still could see the flames on that burning island after being at sea for a full day. Now, George was pretty upset, and he swore vengeance on any person who actually did this. They wouldn't admit who did it. Uh, but it made the island a blackened wasteland, which it was for many years to follow. And it actually went and made a species of tortoise and a species of mockingbirds extinct. Now, by November of 1820, this boat was about a thousand miles from land in an area where they were very successful in finding whales. So in the day in question, George decided to go out in the whaling boat and he left his first mate, who was a 23-year-old man named Owen Chase, to stay on board to make repairs. It was actually Owen who spotted an 85-foot whale lying in the distance. After a couple minutes, the whale started heading towards the ship. That whale hit the ship dead on, and the impact was so hard, it threw the crew to the deck. The whale then passed underneath the ship and began thrashing in the water. Now, the crew, crew who was left later claimed it appeared that it was distracted with rage and fury, but then out of the blue, it disappeared, and the crew started to attempt to deal with the big hole that was now in the ship and try to get the pumps operational to deal with the water coming in. But that's when that whale was spotted again, and he came faster. He hit the bow of the ship, and then he disappeared for good. Well, at this point, water started pouring into the ship, and it was so fast that the crew could only lower their, their safety boats and put them in their food and instruments, water, before the Essex just turned to its side and started to sink. So meanwhile, George was in the distance, and he saw his ship in distress. He came back, and he asked the first mate, okay, what do you do? And he said, and I quote, we have been stoved by a whale. Now, the men actually didn't want to leave the doomed ship, but the captain, he had a pretty good plan, he thought. They would travel to the nearest island for help. They had three boats and 20 men. So they calculated where the nearest land was, and in the most ironic decision ever made in nautical history, the first mate and the crew convinced George, don't go to those islands due to the fact they believed the islands were full of cannibals. So they wanted to go south. So the distance was farther, but they thought they could just get some trade winds or they'd run into another whaling ship and they'd be fine. So George then sided with his men and gave the order to travel south. From the beginning of this part of their adventure, this trip was just plagued with even worse luck. 
salt water had saturated their food rations, so when the men ate it, they were dehydrated. The constant beating down of the sun didn't help, and believe it or not, George's boat was actually attacked by a killer whale. Now, two weeks later, they actually spotted land, but it was barren. Another week passed, they started running out of supplies. By mid-December, after they were at the sea for weeks now, the boats began to take on water. Their small portions of rations started taking their toll. Now, one man was reported to stand up, demand a dinner napkin and water before he fell over and had a seizure. He died that same day. So as at this point, the starving crew decided they had to actually sever the limbs from the body, cut the meat from his bones, remove his heart, and commit the rest of the body to sea. So that's when they started roasting body parts for supper. Now, over the next week, three more sailors died and had the same fate as the first guy. The ration human flesh didn't last. Now, the survivors said the more they ate, the hungrier they got. Now, soon the men on the boats became so weak, they started to reason without any more food, they were all going to die. So on December 6, 1821, which was nine weeks after the Essex sunk, the men decided to draw straws to determine who was going to be eaten next. That short straw was drawn by a man named Owen Coffin, who just happened to be George's cousin. Now, George, he wasn't having this. After all, he promised his aunt he would look after his cousin. But George threatened to shoot anybody who would come near Owen, but Owen stopped him. He said he was offering himself up for the others to survive. So they drew straws again, and one of Owen's friends drew the short straw. The friend killed Owen, and soon there was nothing left. So on February 18th, after 89 days at sea lost, the last three surviving men on the first mate's boat saw an English ship and were rescued. After losing sight of each other for a couple days previous to this, George's boat had drifted 300 miles away. Now on this boat, there was only the captain and a man named Charles Ramsey. When they were found, on the bottom of the boat was the bones of the last crewman. Mm -hmm. Now they had eaten everything that they could. A week after the first mate's boat was rescued, an American ship saw the captain's boat and rescued the men. But they actually didn't rejoice on their being rescued. They actually jumped to the bottom of the boat to stuff the bones in their pockets. Now, when they were on the American ship, the men were seen holding onto these bones and refused to part with them. So soon all the, the five survived, they were reunited. And after recuperating, they returned to Nantucket. It was George who told his fellow captains about his experience. Now, the crew, they actually got no judgment because it was thought they only did what they did to survive the circumstances. But George, on the other hand, was not forgiven. You see, he ate his cousin. He was accused, believe it or not, of doing gastronomic incest. And George's aunt could not see him or have him in her presence ever again. It was said on the anniversary of the shipwreck, he would lock himself in his room and fast in honor of his lost crewmen. Wow. Talk about a total twist of a tale. Yeah, gastronic incest. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, is that a crime? I don't know. So, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer apparently isn't a very, very strange case after all. Not particularly. No. But the difference between Jeffrey Dahmer, he did it because he wanted to. These guys had to. Well, if somebody is mentally ill and they have to do something like cannibalism, you know, is it that they wanted to or that they had to? True. True. Again, it's hard, it's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, we never know what's going on in somebody's brain. True. Very true. Uh, as uh, you know, we're both in Canada. You're in Ottawa and I'm in Ontario and I'm over here in Crystal Beach. 
Ontario. Are there any cases in uh, in Canada where where cannibalism has been established as a fact? Um, not that I can find, believe it or not. Wow. But again, our history hasn't necessarily been recorded back as far as other places. Mm-hmm. And I find in certain areas they actually go and um, try to hide this. Uh, a great example of this is the Donner Party. Uh, for years, again, these people yeah. had to do what they had to do to survive. All right, hold but on, hold in on. in the same breath, they oh. had to hide it. Okay, we're going to have to take our break. Uh, this is our final break for this hour. Next Nation, if you'd like to find out more about Brenda, her website, visit horrifyinghistory.podbean.com and Brenda and I will return on the other side of this break as the Exxon continues from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, Ask Sue London, the pet psychic, is coming here to the Exxon Broadcast Network and um, she's also got a TV show that we're going to be producing and having on the Exxon TV channel that is exclusive to Simul TV. More about exciting programming coming to you right here on the Exxon Broadcast Network and on the Exxon TV channel later on in tonight's show. Don't go away. Problem is all inside your head, she said to me. The answer is easy if you take it logically. I'd like to help you in your struggle to be free. There must be 50 ways to leave. On this useless night With you so far away I stand in front of this Exonation Brenda Gansky is our special guest. Her website is www.horrifyinghistory.podbean.com. And, and Brenda, does cannibalism only if is cannibalism only affected if you eat another member of your own species? For example, if somebody likes their steaks very, very rare, and they eat it very rare. No, I, I'm serious. I'm serious about this. Does is that considered to be part? Uh, cannibalism. Well, if that's true, I'm a cannibal because you and me I both, love yeah. blue rare steak. You and me both. <laughs> that's, you know, I'm, I'm, it's nice to know I'm in good company. But, um, but is there a connection between people who eat raw meat and cannibals? Well, I would have to say no because basically by definition it has to be your own species. And I tend to like raw cow, mm-hmm. um, not raw humans. But there is people out there that do like raw humans, so I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, all right, let's let's go one step uh, further. Is uh, vampirism part of cannibalism, or just because you drink the blood or bodily fluid of another human doesn't make you a cannibal? Under definition, no. But um, cannibalism and uh, vampirism is a whole different thing. If you look at the history behind vampirism, they actually do believe now that it's been tied to 
um, where there has been outbreaks of vampirism. They have studied historically, and at the same time, they've had breakouts of rabies. Hmm. It would explain a lot. It, it would. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Alfred G. Packer. <laughs> well, this guy is a very unique guy. Um, he holds the a very unique place in American legal history. He is the only U.S. citizen who has been charged, tried, and convicted of murder and cannibalism. Now, believe it or not, Dahmer wasn't. It was just murder. So to tell you a little bit about Alfred, he was born in Colorado in 1847. He spent his early years drifting throughout the Utah Territory while supporting himself as a con artist. He mostly claimed he was a very experienced mountain man, but in the fall of 1873, he convinced 20 people in Salt Lake City to financially support an expedition up to Gunnison River in Colorado. He claimed this river was full of gold and he would lead them there if they funded his, his trip. So Alfred was leading the group, and they made their way to the San Juan Mountains and pretty well got lost immediately. The party was near starvation when they found the winter camp of the local UT indigenous tribe. Now, the indigenous people nursed them all back to health, and they warned them, turn back since the snow from the winter always blocks the mountain trails. Half the party listened. They went back to Utah. Those guys were the smart ones. The other 10 decided not to because they believed in their guide and his tales of gold, so they stayed with Alfred. The indigenous tribe then gave him supplies and advised them to follow the river upstream for safety, but, you know, Alfred ignored this, and he went right back to the mountains. After he did, five more people clued in that this was a really bad idea and turned back. The other five was fueled by gold fever, and they continued on. Days later, they were exhausted, they were half-frozen, they were out of food when they found a deserted cabin. Most of them just said, we want to go back to Salt Lake City, but Alfred didn't want to go. He was broke, and returning meant he would not get any money from the group. So when everybody was asleep, Alfred pulled out his gun. He shot four of them who died instantly, but the fifth woke up with the noise. This guy tried to defend himself, but Alfred hit him in the skull with his rifle, killing him. He then robbed them all, and then he did something else. He decided to make human jerky. Oh. So, with his, with his strength returned with all that human jerky, he packed the jerky to get him back to a place called the Los Pintos Agency. Several miles out, Alfred then dumped the jerky out of his backpack to conceal his crime. When mm-hmm. he got to Los Pintos Agency, he was welcomed with open arms by the commander of the agency, which was a man named General Adams. Now, Alfred was offered food, but instead, Alfred only wanted whiskey, and he said, oh, no, I'm not hungry. Well, this made people suspicious. I mean, he's out in the wilderness for a long time. He looks pretty thin, but he doesn't want any food. So this is when Alfred pulled out his big bankroll, and people started asking a lot of questions. Now, Alfred's explanations of his time was pretty vague and contradictory. He first alleged he was attacked by the indigenous population, but then he changed his story and said that some of his party went completely mad and attacked him. But then, two of the UT warriors discovered the remains of the jerky that Alfred discarded, and he report, they reported this to General Adams. Adams ordered for Alfred to be immediately locked up, and he sent a lawman who was named Lottier to the crime scene to investigate. But somehow, as Lottier was done doing his investigation, Alfred managed to escape prison. He made his way back to Utah, and he lived for the next 10 years under an assumed name. Now, one day, a member of the original party of Alfred saw him and recognized him. Alfred was then arrested on March 12, 1884, and he returned to Colorado for trial. Now, of course, Alfred was like, oh, no, I'm innocent here. But soon the evidence made it pretty obvious what he did. This is when Alfred confessed, but he didn't just confess. 
he started to revel in all the attention he was getting in the press due to the trial. And he started talking about the merits of eating human flesh during the trial itself. In fact, one of the final days of trial, Alfred said that the best human jerky was made from the meat on a person's rib. Now, the judge, he was not impressed with this at all. And he said, and I quote, and I'm going to try not to laugh. Okay. Alfred G. Packard, you no good son of a bitch. There wasn't but seven Democrats in Hinsdale County, and you done eat five of them. You're going to hang by the neck until you're dead. <laughs> so he, there, ate, he ate most of the Democrats. So there's a very important <laughs> message right there. You know, if you're going to eat, don't eat a Republican, eat a Democrat. They're tastier, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, Alfred actually got away with what he did due to a technicality. Now, here's a technicality. His lawyer appealed his conviction due to the crime was committed in 1863 in the territory of Colorado. But the trial began in 1844 in the new state of Colorado. The state constitution was adopted in 1860, or 1876, and it did not address this type of crime. So they had to drop the charges down to manslaughter. So therefore, they couldn't hang him. So Alfred was then re-sentenced to 40 years in prison, and he was paroled in 16. He was freed in 1901 and spent the rest of his days working on a farm as a farmhand. And he was living near Denver, Denver before he died in 1907 in his sleep. <laughs> you know, for some, for some strange reason, I find myself getting very hungry as we progressed through this hour. <laughs> Are you wanting ribs? No, a nice, <laughs> a nice, really raw steak. <laughs> you know what? What's the name of that? Well, the next time I'm up there, I'll go and go take you for a steak. All right, and you and I will eat it raw, and we'll have everybody look at us, and we'll say, "Hey, we're just chewing the fat." Oh, <laughs> sorry, couldn't help that one. So, listen, what's next for you? You know, like the, you're you're a very interesting young lady. You're a Canadian, which I'm very proud of. Um, mm -hmm. So tell us more. What, what's next for you? You've got this successful podcast going on, and um, where do you go from here? Well, that that wasn't planned, actually. I originally started horrifying history just because it was a hobby, honestly. Um, a girlfriend of mine, had, when we I was living in Alberta, yeah. started a podcast, and being a good friend, got to listen to it. Yeah. And she asked me to be on her show, and that's when I came up with the idea. I didn't expect it to be successful, um, but with that, we've uh, branched out a lot. And thankfully, I have a great team behind me. Thank God for them. Um, we actually have developed a lot for our YouTube channel. Um, mm -hmm. We've developed a show called History Cole's Notes, which is a synopsis. As you know, Cole's Notes is a synopsis of something. Yep. And we take the most commonly asked history questions and we answer them. For example, what is prohibition? Um, we did a limited series about 15 shows. Mm -hmm. um, we are now moving on to our third show that we're in planning right now. And I think we're going to be doing the very first paranormal game show that I've ever seen. So actually, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be coming out this winter. Actually, there already is a paranormal game. That Are you talking about a board game or a TV game? Nope. What? It's going to be like a game show TV show. Uh, there's already one out. And it came out in 1993. I wonder if it's going to be like ours. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I was the executive producer for it, so that's how come I know it goes back to 1993. Oh. Well, uh, what was that one about? The paranormal. Parapsychology. Oh, well, ours is going to be called Two Spooks and a Lie. 
We are going to have it's basically a twist off the good old uh, game of two truths and a lie. Yeah. I tell three stories. Yeah. They're coming in from right now from our listeners, mm-hmm. and you get to choose which one's a line of crap and yeah. which one is the actual truth. Well, good for you. Um, good luck with that. And uh, once again, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us. And if you'd like more information about our guest this hour, XO Nation. Her name is Brenda Gansky, and her website is horrifyinghistory.podbean.com. Now, I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. And if you'd like to send me an email, X-Zone at X-Zone Radio TV.com on all social media sites, X-Zone Radio TV. And um, the, X, the X game, which was... Created by yours truly, going back to, let me see, 1993, no, 1992, was available in every major game store across Canada. And we're going to be republishing it and making it available in January. And yes, we also have a TV show called Paranormal Court TV that is exclusive to Simul TV. And we'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the X-Zone with yours truly, Rob McConnell, from where? Our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. On this useless night With you so far away I stand 